Asshole Court is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so just don't. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale of a man who might be a dick, who started with dyslexia but finished out real rich. Today we're covering the story of a man that many of you might not know. His name is Adam Newman, and he was one of the founders of a company that you might have heard of, though, WeWork. But regardless of whether you're aware of either Mr. Newman or the company WeWork, you are no doubt aware of this type of story, an aspirational capitalist love story. The outline goes like this. A quirky kid born into relative adversity manages to overcome and, harnessing an insane drive and entrepreneurial flair, builds a company that makes him a man rich beyond imagination. You know, a standard rags-to-riches story, a la the fare of famous 19th century writer Horatio Alger. Trouble is, Horatio Alger always seemed to leave the main character right at the apex of their abilities and fortunes. He tended to leave out the egos, questionable morals, and decision-making that sometimes accompanies or arguably facilitates the creation of massive wealth. And he certainly didn't write about their fall from grace. But, this being asshole court, we're more than happy to do the dirty work Alger missed out on and dig out those nasty little details on the Adam Newman story. Was Newman just a goofy-looking, eccentric genius who had a unique way of viewing the world? Or was he a repulsive con man who cynically trafficked in big concepts and spirituality simply to sell the idea of a business that wasn't really all that groundbreaking? Was he just an exceptionally lucky dude? A guy born under a good sign that dictated that, no matter what happened, the cosmos would align to make him a winner in the end? Was he Jerry Seinfeld's neighbor and nemesis? Nope, that was an entirely different Newman. We'll discuss all of it on today's episode. This is Newman. This is Asshole Court. All right, guys, so uh, let's go ahead and get the preliminary scores. Who wants to go first? All right, I'll go first. So I only knew a little bit about Adam Newman before we decided to do the show, mm-hmm. and uh, every time I Googled him, I couldn't help but giggle a little due to the fact that he looks like a total like stoner lesbian. That's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> it's true. Not that there's anything wrong with either of these. But all I could think of was the character Blanca from Orange is the New Black. Okay. And if you have watched the show, Adam Newman favors this woman yeah he's a strange looking cat man yeah she's the one that's always talking about el diablo yes yes yeah absolutely i know he's a good salesman and it translated into him building a company that was worth a lot of money until all the inside financial information got kind of released i've heard a few of the stories um, i'm sure that we're going to get into today some of his crazy thoughts and his ideas Mm -hmm. asshole wise um i'll go pretty tame to start i'll give him a 4.75 to start off with All right, buddy. So I didn't hear of Adam Newman at all before we started doing the research for this show. 
Now, I don't know if everybody knows it out there, but Randy and Mikey are a little bit more tied into current political events and also just current news, while I kind of just don't watch the news at all, and I stay out of all of it for the most part. And they actually bring me into everything that I need to know. So thank you, guys. Yeah, <laughs> always, man. We got you. But I really, I've never heard of this guy before. I'd never heard of WeWorks before we decided to do this guy. So I really am going into this blind. Uh, I know he's not in jail, and I know he's worth a lot of money still after uh, apparently a lot of scandalous shit. So my initial asshole score for Adam Newman is going to be pretty tame. I'm going to give him a 3.5. If we say the average guy's about a 3 or 4, I'm going Mm -hmm. right in between the two for him because I don't know who he is. All right. Fair enough. Uh, I obviously picked this character. I am in tune as much as I can be with like the business and investment world because it just interests me and stuff like that. So I saw this whole thing kind of go down over the past few years with WeWork. And uh, they were one of these mighty unicorns that you always hear about, you know, these uh, tech companies that, you know, sort of blow up and get these uh, eye-watering valuations and stuff like that. And people become not wealthy overnight, but become wealthy to a level that is shocking uh, almost overnight, you know, from uh, various backgrounds and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I knew a little bit about going into it, obviously. I'd read a bunch of news on this stuff. So, I mean, just to start off in here, I'm going to give them a five off the rip. Just to kind of get the ball rolling here. So with a 4.75 from Randy, a 5.0 from Mikey, and a 3.5 from Buddy, Adam Newman's original asshole score is going to be a 4.42. Okay. All right. There it is. Here we go. You guys ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Adam Newman is born in Tel Aviv, Israel on April 25th, 1979 to parents Aviv and Doron Newman. His parents divorced when he was only seven years old, and he and his younger sister, Adi, moved to uh, the U.S. with their mother, who was in the residency stage of her medical career. Newman suffered from extreme dyslexia, so much so that he allegedly could not read or write until he was in the third grade. He got the word race car right, correct? That's all. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my go-to. It's the go-to. That's my go-to. His sister is a model, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Adi. Yep, that's right. She's uh. A little hottie hottie. Yes, yeah, of course. Hottie hottie for show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They lived in the U.S. for four years before returning to Israel in 1990, where they lived in a kibbutz. It was actually the kibbutz near Am. I don't know if you guys are familiar with what a kibbutz is. It's a communal group, right? Right. Yeah. Kibbutz is a type of settlement which is unique to Israel, but really at the end of the day, it's just a commune. They uh, started out back in the early 20th century is based around agriculture. And the first kibbutz was called the uh, Degen Yah and was founded by pioneers in 1910. Today, there are over 270 different, they call them kibbutzim in Israel. And they have uh, diversified greatly since their agricultural beginnings with many that are like now privatized. So much more of like a community feel to what you got going on, right? Yes. Okay. But So are these similar to the hippie communes back in the 70s? Yeah, basically it's a commune. It really is. But they've become a sort of a, at this point now in Israel, they've become sort of a powerful force in some ways. And they're like organized as private businesses almost. But I'm sure they have a lot of pull. You know what I mean? If you get enough people centralized in one location, you're going to get a little bit of political pull. You know, early on, they started out as a a standard commune. But I actually know a couple people that lived on a kibbutz in in Israel and they talk about it very fondly. Like they really like the experience and everything like that. And, um, you know, I mean, I could see sort of the draw if you, you know. Sounds like a good time, bro. You know, you hang out. Yeah. Um, big sense of community. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the word kibbutz itself means gathering. 
However, the first kibbutzim were called Kvatzat. Are there any uh, Israeli porn sites dedicated to kibbutzes, I'm wondering? Well, the internet rule is that if you have an idea, there's already a porn about it. So All right, I would so they're out there. Okay. <laughs> I haven't looked it up, but I wouldn't be surprised. So, As is already shown with all of the COVID-19, like, mask porn that's been going on all of a oh, sudden. Yeah. You know? yeah, well, we already, we've talked yeah. about the Popeye's chicken porn. And whatever's whatever's there. hot, there's going to be a porn yeah, out whatever there. Whatever there is, it. there's a porn for it, you know. But the idea of him living in a kibbutz is sort of interesting contextually with the future of what he gets into, right? The Newman family moved around constantly. According to Newman, he lived in 13 different homes by the time he was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Adam is accepted into the Israeli Naval Academy and serves for five years, reaching the rank of captain. Fairly normal, right? Everybody in Israel has... Yeah, you are. In fact, he did his service first. It's a conscript society where no matter who you are, you have to become, and even right. girls, yep. have to be, I think, spend two years in the Israeli military. But he actually went back afterwards, okay. went to the Israeli Naval Academy, and then became an officer for five years with the Israeli Navy. Left as a captain, right? Left as a captain, yeah. Okay. Um, then uh, in 2001, Adam moves to New York City with his sister, Adi, who, like we mentioned, was a professional model, and she was a former Miss Teen Israel. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, and she yeah, she was an attractive girl for sure, which is weird because he's such a strange-looking guy. Again, he is a very goofy-looking motherfucker. This guy, I'm telling you, he looks like a stoner lesbian. You Google him, the, <laughs> the image comes up, and you're like, man, yeah, for real? All right, yeah, I'm yeah. going with it. Yeah, yeah, it would be like if you morphed Ashton Kutcher and Ellen DeGeneres and then smoked them <laughs> out real hard, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> they, uh, they lived in Tribeca in a tiny apartment, and according to Newman himself, he spent his early days in New York after arriving from Israel, mainly going to clubs and, quote, hitting on every girl in the city. And figuring out how to get rich. Well, I mean, I, I wonder how the girls took that, too, though. They're like, is this chick coming on to me? Or, or what's happening right now? I've never been approached by a, a lesbian, but, I mean, I'm willing. He's, uh, he's like six foot five, so they were like, this chick's a, that's Boy, a huge bitch. That's a tall lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> that's a huge bitch. She looks real stoned, too. I don't know. In uh, 2002, he enrolls in the business program at uh, Barrick. College in New York. I don't know if I pronounced that yeah, right. Yeah, it's I'm, a tough one. I read that, too. I'm not real it. sure either, yeah. Uh, it's here that he claimed that he actually thought of the original concept of We Live, which was WeWork's communal living business for a school entrepreneurship competition. However, the idea was killed in the competition's second round because a professor didn't think Newman would be able to raise enough money to, quote, change the way people live. Not good enough, Newman. 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 So after he got out of college, his first entrepreneurial idea was actually a woman's shoe That's with right. a collapsible heel. Really? How the fuck did that work? It was like a slinky almost and a high heel. I think instead of like a slinky, it would be more like a transformer. Yeah, that's like, what I'm yeah, trying to think sort of. Like of the... It could be a, a high heel, and then if you want to switch it to flats, you just sort of upend that piece into the bottom of the flats or whatever. But obviously, auto shoes since, roll out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like Autobot shoes. <laughs> Uh, but obviously, since we're sitting here trying to figure out how it actually works, it's obvious that it didn't work out very well. Not at all. Yep. Right? Uh, his next attempt was a truly revolutionary idea that would change the world. Right. And that was baby clothes with knee pads built into them. So I think their motto was, just because they don't tell you doesn't mean they can't hurt. Okay. I've had a child and I've never seen- You anything. haven't had a child. Your wife had a child. Well, that's true. But- uh, <laughs> 
I have a, a kid that uh, I watched grow up, and I remember when he was a baby, that baby fat is very real. It's a very real pain. Oh, yeah. I never lost mine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you don't really see a bunch of kids crawling across the floor, like crying the whole time. Yeah. You know what I Their mean? Their knees are bruised. And that's the thing. Natural instinct is if your knees are severely bruised or rubbed raw, yeah. you're not going to crawl anymore. You're yeah. going to cry and... Anyway, they move, yep. man. Th- it didn't work either, right? No. Well, like I said, and not to knock the dude for trying, but honestly, at this point, these attempts remind me of the inventions Homer Simpson made when he was trying to emulate Thomas Edison, like <laughs> the makeup gun, <laughs> the recliner with a built-in toilet. You know what I'm saying? It's just not like for someone that's supposed to be this big business genius. I'm like, these are fucking horrible ideas. The recliner with a toilet, built-in toilet. Has a little bit of legs. There's no way. No one wants to sit around you and, and smell your shit while you watch the fucking football game. So what if, like, what would you do? Like, you're sitting around watching the game with the guys, and then you're like, hey, guys, I need y'all to leave the room for a second. Or you can stay, you know? Nope. You guys are missing it completely. Imagine your recliner in the garage, in your man cave, or wherever, your basement. You're by yourself. Because honestly, most, I would think, a lot of guys watch football on their own. Mm-hmm. You got to take a dump. You don't want to get up and miss. It's fourth down. It's third and long, and your team's trying to hold them. Imagine streaking the toilet bowl like on the recliner, where it actually creates a shit stain on the recliner itself. There's no yeah, way. There's got to be some sort of plumbing involved, or you Let don't want to get up. Question. You don't want to leave. Remember when you were a kid and that you would be at your grandmother's house and you'd go take a shit and she'd have that soft padded seat and how gross it was. The idea of sitting on some soft material. I like a padded seat. Do you like a padded toilet seat? I actually like sitting on that soft padded material as well. All right. Oh my God. There's something so weird about it to me, dude. Well, it's not like as an adult, I've gone out and bought those. But as a kid going back, going over to grandma's house, that was the jam. You weren't putting your ass on the cold, like ice cold porcelain. I would like a heated seat, but I don't want... Well, we're getting way off topic. Uh, Let me tell you, though. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. But bad ideas sometimes beget good ones. And sure enough, it's in the period where he's trying to build crawlers that he actually meets Miguel McKelvey, right? Miguel McKelvey is a lead architect at a small firm. Uh, They were working in the same building together, and they discussed their interest in entrepreneurship and real estate. At one point, Newman had apparently fallen in love with a vacant warehouse on Water Street. He was working over there uh, off of Dumbo in Brooklyn. He approached the landlord and asked about the building. The landlord reportedly said, dude, you're in baby clothes. What do you know about real estate? And Newman replied, well, your building's empty. What do you know about real estate? Yeah. Touche, motherfucker. Burn. Yeah. This was around the time of the financial crisis, so things were tough for business people, for entrepreneurs, to say the least. Sure. So McKelvey and Newman realized that there were a lot of vacant spaces in their shared building, and they got the idea to open a co-working space for other entrepreneurs. They begged the landlord to let them try out renting space on very short terms to individuals or small companies. After a while, the landlord acquiesced, and they were given the first floor to see how the idea played out. Sounds like a casting call set up. That's it. Get on that couch. <laughs> I'm going to need a room for about five hours. Um, and then Pornhub was born. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's you know flexible leasing and stuff like that. And That's exactly what we're looking for here what? at DirtyJobs.com. <laughs> That's right. Even comes with this nice black leather couch that y'all can use for anything y'all want. Always the black leather couch, man. So let's talk for a minute about what the business idea actually was. Absolutely, because this is a big part of WeWork. Yeah. And I'm going to shoot it out there. It sounds like a glorified property management company. You know what I mean? It's called Rent Arbitrage. Yeah. Okay. It isn't exactly a new idea at all. Yeah, like Rent Arbitrage sounds like a really fancy term, but here's what it is essentially. 
It's an office company that doesn't own any offices. Like Uber and Airbnb, it's essentially a middleman, like renting space from others at wholesale and then upcharging for like cool design, flexible leases, and built-in services like internet, reception, mailroom, and cleaning. Pretty standard stuff if you're leasing an office space, honestly, though. You expect a cleaner. Um, you expect a lot of the utilities, things yeah. like that, are all in on yeah. your rent bill. You know what I mean? Yeah, all bundled in. Yeah, exactly. The first iteration was called Green Desk, and the focus was on having an office environment that focused on sustainable co-working spaces featuring recycled furniture and electricity that came from wind power. Lame. Uh, well, the idea worked out really well. It, no, it absolutely <laughs> did, but... I just imagine him pulling his hair back behind his yeah. ears and, oh, bro, we're going to be sustainable and everything's green. And we're good to go. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people want that, I yeah. guess. I agree with the sustainability and all the, the green measures we're going to. But, right. uh, again, back to the hippie commune upbringing. Yeah. I mean, it leans all sort of right plays back in. into it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea of, like was a knockout uh, right off the rip, man. Newman and McKelvey quickly sold Green Desk to their landlord, actually. And they yeah. pocketed a few million. Mm-hmm. from selling it and founded dun, 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 WeWork. That's right. Ooh, inventive. So, yeah. <laughs> Newman said they quickly realized that being green should be a part of anything we do, but community is really the future of work. So WeWork in its current iteration opened its doors to New York City entrepreneurs in April of 2011. The first WeWork location was just 3,000 square feet in a tenement-style building in Soho. What sort of separated Newman and McKelvey's uh, operation from other rent arbitrage setups was an idea that the space would eventually become central to tenants' lives. There would be WeWork gyms and WeWork apartments and even like WeWork barbershops. What was he like trying to create the Facebook working environment of WeWorks or something like that? Yeah, I just wanted basically the entry point was that you rented a desk space, but then they offered so many amenities that it absorbed you into the entire biosphere, right? This also sounds like Billy McFarland when he was renting out that office space in New York. You know, like it was all like, oh, look at all the amenities that come with it. All these right. cool people are going to be there. Well, his was like a fucking He-Man Woman Haters Club set up, you know, like a, a hangout <laughs> club. Where like, at least in this case, it was like, hey, you do need workspace. And a lot of people are, you know, a lot of people work independently. They're 1099s or whatever. They're, you know, sure. that's how. So it makes sense. And, and honestly, that first property they picked out. 3,000 square feet in Soho, that ain't cheap. No, not at all. No, not at all. You know what I mean? That That is an expensive investment, and I'm wondering- I, I, They leased know. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I'm wondering what the overhead and what the charges were if I wanted to go in and rent an office for a month or whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm going to give a money breakdown on what the actual valuation of the company was towards the end of this. All but right. Yeah, early on. So basically, they would. it was sort of a roll-up setup where they would go- you know, they got a couple million in their pocket from selling Green Desk, mm-hmm. and they went and they leased a long-term building. They right. didn't own the building. Right. They just leased it, Correct. and then they would sure. sublet the lease, yeah. basically, right? Yeah. Which is a real common yeah. thing Very that happens common. in New York. Absolutely. Especially in New York. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, his idea was that it would operate like a capitalistic 21st century kibbutz. You'd live there. You'd work there. You would get your hair cut there. you fuck there. You Well, obviously, you'd fuck there at work. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I believe he said that he was trying to bring that Israeli community yep. sense that he felt back at home here to the States. Yeah. And so he's always talking about like community and stuff like that, which, you know, the other thing was we were offered some like actually some really cool stuff, right? They offered like stocked kitchens. There was free gourmet coffee. There was free beer. 
There was soundproof phone booths for important calls. There was like a kind of concierge service to help people that were actually renting desks and office spaces. There was a homeless guy in the bathrooms that would give you a towel, a mint, and a spray of cool water cologne if you just put a dollar in the plastic (laughs) french fry basket on the top of the soap dispenser. I'm just kidding about the homeless Well, and my thing too is like I've gotten to the age now where I realize all those things come with a cost. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The amenities are great to have. But a lot of that shit, if I'm a bare bones operator, mm-hmm. I don't want that. No, absolutely. But well, yeah. I may not have been there. The demographic, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at a demographic that's for New York that, you know, people are living in one bedroom apartments, two bedroom apartments, and they need to get out of their apartment to work. I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, when, when you're um, sort of in a startup environment, it's obviously like, quote unquote, aspirational, right? So you hear about all these cool companies in like Silicon Valley and, you know, more happening in Northern, like FinTech up in New York, where you have all these fucking crazy cool amenities, like, oh, there's a fucking pinball machine and a ping pong table. And that's like, for us, it doesn't make sense. But for a lot of people that are in startups, they're like, this is how I want my company to run anyway. So I'm going to go ahead and get the ball rolling. Yeah, they want to create that environment where it's like work here, but also feel like you want to live here. Yeah, I mean, and actually that it's sort of a trap. And that's what people are starting to realize now in our generation is that like if they make it really cool for you to be at work all the time, it's because they actually want you to be at work all the time. All the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Quick, before your boss walks by and you have to minimize your screen, give us a quick follow on Twitter and Instagram and give us a like on Facebook. Your support is much appreciated. Now, back to the action. So, yeah, with the success they found early on, they were quickly able to book up space and lease new buildings. Their early success quickly catches the attention of big venture capital firms like Benchmark, who ultimately led their Series A around a funding of $17 million. I always wonder how you get the attention of a big investor like that. Well, here's the thing. It seems like it's becoming more and more these days that everybody's investing to try and catch that next Uber, that next Airbnb. So much money is getting dumped in by angel investors Mm -hmm. to try and be on the forefront of that stuff. Yeah, well, that's certainly been the case, actually, up until this point, which is what's interesting because WeWork may have been the company that sort of broke that model. Oh, really? Yeah, we're going to get into that for sure. So yeah, basically, if you have connections in like venture capital and stuff like that, and this is what the game plan is, is sort of a rollout where, you know, you give it like a proof of concept, and then sometimes you have there's different rounds of funding. The first round, if you yeah. can get it, is called like seed funding. Usually, it's a very small amount, relatively speaking, like maybe even like a hundred thousand dollars, maybe up to a million or whatever. And then if the concept plays out. Then you go to what's called round A of funding, right? Right. Series A of funding. Sure. And these guys had already accomplished the seed part first. They proved that the concept worked. Uh, And so by the time that they had sold Green Desk and they were into this mode here that they had self-funded, then they got the attention of Benchmark. And Benchmark came in and led the round of Series A funding. So they already kind of established themselves a little bit. Oh, people, yeah. People had their eye on them already. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You already proved the concept. And so, and then it sort of rolls through that. You get round A, round B. And each time they're sort of like you invest early stage. And every time that a new round of funding happens, you can sell some of your shares to the people that are in the round right. B, maintain some, or just completely get out. Sure. And the ultimate goal is is to IPO. And that's like the pinnacle. That's when you can cash out like Snap did or Facebook or whatever. And at that point, everybody that had invested up to that point gets paid. Right. 
By 2014, WeWork held 1.5 million square feet of rentable space and had 10,000 members. And so obviously they're successful at this point, right? Yeah. The, the, the concept has proven itself. But success is a hell of a drug. And with WeWork blasting off into the stratosphere, Newman slowly became the face of the operation and was also the one dictating the culture of the company. And the culture of the company was, it was weird. Yeah, <laughs> At absolutely. least to a lot of outside observers. And this was in part due to Newman's emphasis on community that he dubbed the, quote, we generation. That's right. So he constantly talked about how WeWork was going to change the world. In one summer camp he held for employees in London, he said, quote, the influence and impact that we're going to have on this earth are going to be so big. Another time he claimed that WeWork could, quote, solve the problem of children without parents and eradicate world hunger. What? So again, in my intro, I talked about him being a good salesman. I didn't say a businessman. I said he's a good salesman oh, yeah. because of shit like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a lot of hype. Oh, yeah. A property management company is going to change the fucking world. That's it's going to solve world hunger and yep. end poverty and help mm -hmm. the kids. God, that sounds like a used car salesman if I've ever heard one. Right. It's openly absurd, but if you're plugged into there and you have a vested interest because you're putting the money in, then you're sort of like, well, you know, and I'm going to get into that too, because this isn't just a story about Adam Newman. It's really about the entire like startup culture. You yeah, know? absolutely. Sure. So, um, you know, but Newman talked openly and seriously about becoming the world's first trillionaire. That's right. He uh, pushed for rowdy parties, for office functions, which, you know, I guess that's kind of cool, I guess. But uh, he often walked around barefoot in the office and would sometimes hop up on people's desks to proclaim something loudly. I mean, imagine your boss jumping on your desk barefoot and yelling at the top of his lungs about community in the Wii generation. I'm like, fuck me, man. Dude, he sounds like fucking Jerry Maguire jumping up on the fucking desk and shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, like but Jerry Maguire barefoot. And, uh, you know, I'm just like, for the average dude, it's just like, I'm just trying to get to the weekend, man. Like, smoke another one, bro. Yeah. yeah. And plus, if he jumps up on the desk, like, the desks are at least like two and a half, three feet high, and he's already six and a half feet tall, so now he's like ten feet tall? Yeah, He yeah. is ten feet tall. He is, he is ten and feet tall. And bulletproof, by the way. <laughs> at times, he was known to blare pop songs in his office while a trainer held a punching bag for him to attack. He'd finish his boxing session, then walk around the office for the rest of the day, just a sweaty mess. That also falls a lot into New York mentality, I think, once you start getting in all the money and all that stuff. I'd be so fucking pissed if I'm sitting there at my desk busting my ass and I look in my boss's office and he's in there hitting a punching bag with a trainer and then just rolling around like some fucking commune hippie. Yeah. Well, that and then like on top of that, you're like, please shower, dude. Like you're, yeah, you're. Sweaty. Yeah, you look like a lesbian stoner already. Right, so let's <laughs> let's keep it trimmed up at least, bro. There you get go. a haircut, <laughs> he, Newman. It's a level of narcissism at this point. You know what I'm saying? Where it's just like uh, you exist on a different realm than everybody else is just trying to get through their fucking work day. Yeah. In fact, I mean, he like I said, he created company T-shirts that said things like "Hustle harder" and "Thank God it's Monday." Hmm. I don't share that same sentiment with uh, Mr. Newman. Thank God it's Monday. Yeah. No. I fucking hate Mondays. I'll hustle harder, but I, I don't love Mondays. I No, I'll, I'll hustle all the time. I'll, I'll hustle 24-7. Not on Mondays. Mondays suck. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Coming off the weekend, <laughs> I hate Mondays. Well, and I'll be honest, like, the hustle harder mentality is just sort of self-congratulatory to me. It's so fucking irritating. Like, I'm going to get out there. going to bust ass, bro. This is what we do as entrepreneurs. We go out there. We work hard every day. We're working 80 hours a week. And, uh, you know, I'm just like, 
I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just me where I'm like, you know, a work life environment and like work and home environment to me is like pretty important and stuff like that. And so when it's like this almost borderline cult. Yeah, I was actually it's funny. I was listening to this thing the other day and they were talking about it's another podcast where they talk about moments in history on BBC. And they were talking about the uh, introduction of the first iPhone. And they had a guy that was on the team that worked on the iPhone. And he talked about literally there was one time where these two guys sat there and got into an argument with each other about who spent less time with their kids. <laughs> yeah, that was that's, that's a terrible fucking argument. Yeah, that's a terrible argument. Yeah, but it's a badge of honor to guys like this where it's just like, I'll tell you what, you know what, I'm never at home. I work so much harder than you. And I just, I'm like, I hate that shit. Well, and that's the thing. One of the biggest things that employees look at nowadays is work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You want to have a balance between what you've got at work and what you've got at home and the yeah. time that you're spending to differentiate. Yeah. So to push somebody as hard to brag about how much time you don't spend with your kids, yeah. you can fuck right off with that. And it's part of the culture. That's what I'm yeah. getting at. I mean, yeah. that's him passing out t-shirts that say like, thank God it's Monday. You know, and then we're about to get into this too, because like the level of um, care for his employees is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, he wants them to work super hard for WeWork and stuff like that, but how <clears throat> it ultimately comes out, it's obviously that uh, there's not too much of a sense of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Camaraderie. Community. No, uh, loyalty. Loyalty. There's not much of a sense of loyalty coming from the top levels in, right, this, in these right. games. So Newman was also notorious for making the WeWork offices booze-soaked environments. Mm-hmm. He loved uh, Don Julio 1942 tequila the most. Yep, I read that. A bottle of that usually runs around 100 bucks, and he was notorious for always having it on hand and handing shots out to WeWork employees. What a cheapskate. 100 bucks a bottle? Yeah. You're a... Freaking multimillionaire. Fuck that. Yeah, exactly, dude. Uh, executive retreats required cases of the tequila and pours started early in the morning, apparently. A little day drinking going on there at WeWork. Go. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. But none of the rumors of insanity seemed to dissuade investors from piling mountains of cash into the startup juggernaut. And to be honest, it really isn't that shocking. There's a sort of reverence that people have for an eccentric founder. It didn't start with Steve Jobs, but that's pretty much a great example. People, and in a lot of cases, investors, are quick to overlook what is odd behavior from a business founder under the idea that real geniuses are just generally weird as fuck. Gotta be eccentric to be successful, That's right? right? And in my own opinion, a lot of startup founders seem to adopt an eccentric behavior to complete the image that they want to display. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The dress, the look, mm-hmm. the behavior, the little weird nuances, you know what I mean? Like yeah. We saw it in Elizabeth Holmes trying to imitate that in Steve Jobs. I mean, like Steve Jobs himself oh. sort of set the template where he was yeah. just like, hey, I'm a giant asshole, but I'm a genius and I'm doing this and I live in a fucking giant mansion and all I have is a lamp and a book. And people are like, that's what success looks like. And it sort of permeated throughout the 90s and the past couple of decades with the startup culture was that like if you are going to be a startup success, it's because you are a single individual that is a fucking super genius and also completely eccentric. There's a historical theory of it called like the great man in history theory, which has largely been discredited because your Napoleons and stuff like that, they happen, but Napoleon didn't create everything himself. He happened to be in an environment that sort of contextually created the situation for him to succeed. Sure. Look at a cat like Richard Branson. Mm-hmm. Richard Branson from Virgin, that guy's dipped himself into many different pools. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
he's got that eccentric kind of behavior and look. He plays and that image. part too. The whole a rebel billionaire. Look at me. Oh, he's I'm out here skiing. Oh, he's I got a beautiful model on my back. Yeah, fuck that. I'm not gonna ever go on a cruise because it's around a bunch of families. I'm gonna build a cruise line that's just gonna have a bunch of fucking hot models on it. Come on yeah. with me. I respect the fuck out of him, man. He's done really, really well. And I'm like, the billionaires that I look up to are the people like that. I'm like Bill Gates, nerd-ass dude that just gets shit done and sort of quietly does it. You know what I'm saying? To me personally, like, and it's just my own personal opinion. What everybody wants to think is totally fine. But like when I see like the eccentric billionaires that are just, again, conspicuous consumption where they're like, look at this fucking rocket jet ski that I've got and I'm going to go fucking parasailing with a Kenny naked powers. Model. Yeah. yeah I don't, I'm just like, I don't know, man. It, to me, it feels like it feels like you're compensating or something. It feels odd to me. I like the lottery winners when they go out and blow all their money on some stupid <laughs> yeah. bullshit. Like jetpacks that'll take you over the water like Kenny Powers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, like sort of setting up that eccentric behavior to complete their image seems to work in their favor a lot of times, and it very well might have with Adam Newman. For example, in 2017, it appeared to pay off big time when Newman secured a meeting with Masayoshi-san, the head of the biggest VC fund in the history of the world, SoftBank. That's right. They're a huge corporation yeah. out of China. Japan. Japan. Masayoshi is the richest man in Japan. Oh, wow. Wow. And SoftBank set up a fund, which was literally the largest venture capital fund that has ever existed. Yep. And this is what we were talking about earlier is that when we look back in history, you'll look at this as the peak of the sort of like venture capital model of let's just wash everybody out with so much money that yep. nobody else can compete. That's right. And it'll eventually work itself out. You just immediately scale everybody. From the get go, you know, like, in fact, I've read the story that there was a company that was called, I think it's Wolf. I don't know, uh, buddy, you know, what I'm talking about that. They walk dogs. Yeah. Uh, wag and, um, wag. Yeah. Wag. Wag went to another VC firm first and was like, this is what we need. And I think they were asking for, don't quote me on these numbers, but essentially the story is the same. They're like we need like $3 million to get this done. Or it was like 30 million or something like that. The VC at that point was like, you know, look, we can't give you that much money. It doesn't really make sense to us. SoftBank came through. I believe it was SoftBank came through and this loaded them up was like, take 300 million, take all of this money. Yeah, that's exactly right. And they tried to, because they were like, we'll buy you at scale and nobody else can compete at that point. And that was like the idea. And it seemed to work in the short term, but ultimately they lost the investment's their ass. not there. Yeah, sure. It should be called hard bank going hard yeah. in the paint, hard bank, not soft bank. <laughs> soft bank. But yes, yeah, so a meeting got arranged uh, with Masayoshi's son, who, like I said, was the richest man in Japan, and he was going to tour the WeWork's corporate headquarters for two hours and allow Newman to pitch him for an investment deal. So push comes to shove, Masayoshi's son ends up being well over an hour and a half late for the meeting, and when he arrived, he told Newman, quote, I'm so sorry, but I only have 12 minutes. Exactly 12 minutes later, son said that he needed to leave, but invited Newman to ride with him to the airport. So it was in that ride to the airport that Masayoshi's son was sold on the idea of WeWork. Again, and he actually sketched out an investment contract on an iPad screen that they both signed off on for what would amount to the biggest investment injection in history or one of Whoa. the biggest investment in injections in history. Jeez, that's insane. On a ride to the airport, huh? That's it, yeah. The modern day napkin. It's exactly, it, was a, it was basically a digital cocktail napkin. Yeah. The term sheet emerged from lawyers of the two-party deal. SoftBank would invest $3 billion directly into WeWork, 
1.3 billion via tender offer of existing employee stock and 1.7 billion in new equity. A separate 1.4 billion was to be spread across three new entities to expand WeWork across Asia, WeWork Japan, WeWork Pacific, and WeWork China. Newman's team would build and manage the offices and SoftBank would handle the local relationships, creating a valuation at that point of WeWork for $20 billion. Jeez. I, I just got to imagine that uh, the guy from Japan, he, you know, we talk about the limited time constraints that he had. He had done his homework. Of course. You're not going to power move. You're not going to give somebody three billion dollars without doing your homework. You know yeah. what I mean? Not yeah. at all. You would think. Of course. You would think. <laughs> you would yeah, think. you would think. You would think. No, I'm sure he was completely vetted beforehand. I'm sure we'll dive into the details. Yes. As, and yeah. Newman had some problems with SoftBank. Well, recently. that's, yeah. yeah. SoftBank was the biggest investor in WeWork. Yep. When absolutely. that deal got signed, that's literally when WeWork popped up and yep. everybody was like, holy shit, mm -hmm. this is the thing. Because for the longest time, Masayoshi Son has been figured to be like, he's a fucking genius. They're just like, he's absolutely brilliant with he every investment he does. Yeah. He's, well, yeah, he's the richest man in Japan. Yeah. So he's had a lot of success. Yeah. You don't get to be the richest man in Japan without being at the top of your game. Right. But everybody whiffs sometimes. And the vision fund at this point, which is the VC fund that he set up through SoftBank, is a complete turd. And we're going to get into that here in a minute. Hello, Newman. Hello, Newman. Uh, but actually, what's funny is whether it's accurate or not, Mr. Newman told others that Mr. Son appreciated that he was crazy, but thought that he needed to be even crazier. What? Now, huh. they asked uh, Masayoshi Son's people, they're like, is this true? And they just wouldn't comment. So who knows? But yeah, right. so getting back to the idea that an eccentric founder is like key to success or whatever, it's even these guys are getting fooled by it. I feel like in order for me to be like uber successful in this world, I need to be, uh, I don't know, I need to add some flair to my game. Yeah. It feels like I need to step my flair game up. Get some a early bit. success and just start acting sort of crazy, man. What was that Waiters movie back in the 90s? You need to add like 38 pieces of flair to your game. Exactly right. <laughs> so buoyed by the success of the soft bank capital infusion, the craziness continued. In one interaction with Bloomberg, Newman paused mid-interview as he was served a bowl of super oats with what he called, quote, amazing qualities. At the end of the interview, he asked the journalist Ellen Hewitt what her superpower was before quickly explaining that his superpower was change. And change is painful. So, you know, he's really leaning into the idea of being like a world changer via his rent arbitrage company. Right. Yeah. Property management company changing yeah. the world. Yeah. And it appears to be going to his head a bit. And he seems to be getting a bit out of touch. At one point, he instructed staff to fire 20% of employees a year. What? God, just like, just straight up, I don't care. Every year, I want 20% of employees gone because he was bemoaning the fact of B players that were hired amid the rapid growth. Look. I'm in management in my real life job. Mm -hmm. You are always going to have, quote unquote, your B players. Yeah, of course. But you know what? You need steady eddies to keep yourself afloat, yep. man. You need people there to do your day in, day out operations. Mm -hmm. Sure. And if you want to build stability within a company and, you know, especially within a small office, mm -hmm. you got to have longevity. You have yep. to have people that at least know what they're talking about, know what they're doing. Well, and it's a morale issue, too. Yeah, you want exactly. to have the fear of God that you're going to be. That's why back in the day, there was what they called like stacked rank, which was like you would create a team and everybody had to basically rate each other. And whoever's rated the lowest would be fired immediately. And that creates horrible morale. And like even uh, Steve Ballmer did it at Microsoft and everybody wow. that worked there was like, this is a fucking disaster, man. Because he owns the Clippers. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. He, he got into Microsoft at the beginning. Oh, he's pretty yeah, much. So. Yeah, he's, <laughs> but his tenure as the head of Microsoft is the worst period of Microsoft in history. 
And the I don't stat doubt rank it. Voting, I don't doubt that one bit, actually. Stat rank voting was a big part of that in terms of the team around. And honestly, what if there's a guy in the office that actually does his job pretty well, but people don't like him? Exactly. That's what happens all the time. There That's you what go. I'm saying. They're going to rank that guy the lowest. Yep. You could be one of the top performers, but be a fucking asshole, or mm-hmm. people are just not sociable or whatever, right. and lose your fucking job over yep. it versus some jerk-off that fucking shows up and makes everybody laugh that they yep. like, yep. and they're not going to vote on you. You know what yep. I mean? That's backwards. Well, fucking it's backwards. funny, too, because the managers eventually couldn't even hit the target, even when they included actual attrition counts. So even people that just would quit regularly, they still couldn't make the 20% fucking fire rate right that's a lot of people Jeez. honestly yeah, it's insane like i said it's just it's just bad it, look the dude is whatever he is he has never run a company before really like a massive company so this is the sort of thing that happens and that's the thing to our listeners think about the company you work for mm-hmm. think about filing off one out of every five of employees yeah you know what i mean every year every year every year mm-hmm. yeah exactly he was trying to be steve jobs you know what i mean all these motherfuckers are trying to be like steve jobs dude it's stupid dude So, in another shocking incident, a few weeks after Mr. Newman actually fired 7% of the staff in 2016, he somberly addressed the issue at an evening all-hands meeting at headquarters, telling attendees that the move was tough but necessary to cut costs, and the company would be better because of it. Then, employees carrying trays of plastic shot glasses filled with tequila came into the room, followed by toast and drinks. Then Run DMC entered the room, gave Newman a hug, and broke into performance for the remaining employees, starting the set-off with It's Tricky, while more tequila was passed around. Some of the employees were reasonably stunned. But, I mean, imagine being one of those laid-off employees standing outside the door while you gather your belongings and suddenly hearing toasts on tequila shots and fucking Run DMC playing. It's time to rock around, to rock around, to rock around. It's tricky. tricky. Me, personally, I would have a hard time yeah, if I, I get laid off and you're throwing a party. You could at Ooh, least wait like a week, the man. Way. There should be no yeah. party to be had for that, you know? But that's what I'm saying. This is what you're dealing with. It sounds like he was trying to be the guy from The Wolf of Wall Street. And imagine working for that guy and then, like, getting kicked out right before they were doing their Friday parties and stuff like that. Yeah, I think of the timeline on this. Wolf of Wall Street came out in, what, 2015? And this actual thing happened in, what was it? What did it say? It's 20. 16 around that so yeah he probably had watched wolf of wall street and was he's playing a fucking role man yeah. he's like living this fucking daydream i'm leonardo dicaprio man yeah. instead of just whipping out your phone and pushing random buttons in that awkward situation make sure you're subscribed to our channel on your favorite podcast platform you don't want to miss a new show now back to the action He starts talking openly about running to be prime minister of Israel. Mm -hmm. Then he talks about changing the law so that he can run for president of the U.S. Finally, at one point, he simply says that if he were going to run for an office, it would have to be as a, quote, president of the world. (laughs) And yeah, you're going to have to rewrite the Constitution of the United States if you're trying to be uh, president here. And president of the world isn't a real position. At all, in the slightest. (laughs) Yeah, That's uh, Hector Macho Camacho. It's... Yeah, fucking idiocracy is what that sounds like. It's Homer Simpson's makeup shotgun that's set to whore. There you go. That's that's what it is. It's, that's what this guy is doing, man. Now, it's important to note here that there's another force that's in play as well. Newman had, around this time, married Rebecca Paltrow, who is actually a first cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, I yeah. heard about this. Oh, Gwyneth. Yeah, I heard about that. And Re- a hottie. Yeah, and Rebecca really upped the game on the spiritual mumbo-jumbo side of WeWork. For example, 
Let me pause here and ask you what you guys would have as your mission statement if you were in charge of a glorified rent arbitrage outfit. I want my clients to have the best experience in the lowest rates possible. Something very vanilla and bland. Yeah. All yeah. right. We take care of everything so that way you can get to work or something like that. There you go. That's a good one, buddy. I did that. Good job. You're off the cuff there. Do you want to know what the actual mission statement of WeWork Absolutely. was? Absolutely. Elevate the world's consciousness. Holy shit. Give me a fucking break. You're property management, bro. I'm renting a fucking office or a room from you, and we're trying to change the world off this? Yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. Rebecca had incredible power at WeWork as well. She was a chief brand officer and head of WeGrow, which was the company's preschool and elementary school that cost up to 42000 a year Hang to up. attend. Let me tuck my hair behind my ears real quick just so I can fit in. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. <laughs> okay. She says that her and Adam made business decisions together. They split time between their many homes, which was at least five of them, including a 60-acre Tudor-style estate north of New York City. And this is where they started the idea of WeGrow because they were dissatisfied with the schooling options for their five children. So can you imagine like having to deal with Rebecca Newman about the education that you're going to give their kids? She's an expert on everything. It's all spiritual, and she knows what their kids need. According to a number of people, Rebecca ordered multiple WeWork employees to be fired after meeting them for just a couple of minutes. The reason, she didn't like their energy. You know what? I didn't like your fucking energy, woman. Yeah. I imagine being a new hire in there just trying to absorb all that's going on and uh, seeing the crazy goings on that's happening around you. Yeah. And you go into a meeting for the first time. Honestly, as a new person, you want to sit and listen. You mm-hmm. do want to soak it in. You want to be a sponge and just soak in what you're learning. And if you don't give off a fucking perfect vibe, yeah. you're fired. Yeah. There's no because there's no real thought process to it other than like, I just don't like that motherfucker. Yeah. I actually buy all of my essential oils from Rebecca, so... There you, you know, go. Easy. <laughs> all right. If, yeah, if she wasn't Gwyneth Paltrow's cousin and wasn't married to this guy, she would be selling you essential oils on Facebook. That's right. Man, in fact, at one point, Adam Newman banned the consumption of meat at WeWork offices. Like, literally said, you just can't eat meat here. I heard about this. He did eventually back off a little bit and say that employees could eat meat, but that WeWork wouldn't expense the meals with meat or provide them at company gatherings, which is, you know, it's a little bit over the top. But here's the actual kicker. WeWork employees saw Adam continue to eat meat himself. What a douche. Sounds like a cheapskate to me, because what's the most expensive part of any meal you're going to buy? The protein. Yeah. Always is. But he's the one that's rolling cases of a $110 uh, bottle of tequila to pour in everybody's shot glasses as it goes. I think this is just him trying to be like, I'm above it all. And the thing is, for me, I, if you legitimately want to be a vegetarian, I think that's good. That's cool. That's do what you do your thing. But like, how could you possibly not have the like ability to see what you're doing? How could you be so blatantly hypocritical? Yeah, exactly, dude. To sit there and say like, you guys can't eat meat. You can't expense it. And, and we won't buy any for you and then show up and eat a big ass steak mm, in front of everybody. These burn ends are the bomb. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that was a lot of Rebecca coming out here. But anyway, all of this craziness was being excused or even justified because, again, people thought that as crazy as it sounded, WeWork, which by then had become branded just as We, would actually change the world in a meaningful way and be an extremely profitable one if you were an investor. In reality, though, there were a few problems that would come to light when the prospectus for the IPO was unveiled. First is that Newman was leveraging his power as founder to create deals that served him individually rather than the company. Newman. Yeah. 
Newman's shares for the company had a voting supremacy power of 20 to 1. That's right. Yeah. Meaning that he, special shares, right? There, yes. there was a special share within his shares. Yeah, founding shares. And that's fairly commonplace. It's like 20 to 1 ratio is super. That's crazy. harsh. Yeah, that's a little steep. Meaning that he effectively had full control of the board when it came to voting for big company decisions. What he was doing on the side was he was setting up third party companies in which he bought buildings and then turned around and then leased them to WeWork generating hundreds of millions of revenue for himself. Oh, geez. Criminal. And he was borrowing against his equity in WeWork to buy these to, companies yep. to lease to, to lease. WeWork. To lease. I mean, criminal. Yeah. It's yes. fucking criminal, bro. It really bro. is. It yeah. really is. It's crazy. I mean, best case scenario, it's highly unethical. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. He also trademarked the name We, and then he turned around and sold it to the company for $6 million. And remember... He has the power from his voting rights to approve that purchase or not. Yes. That's right. So even That's if other right. people on the board were like, I don't know about this. He's just like, I outvote you, dude. So I'm going to buy we for WeWork from this other company that was him. He gave it back, right? He wouldn't have. Yeah. He bought it for like $300 for all the fees and shit like that and then turned around and sold it to himself for 5 or $6 million. Yeah, he 5.9 million. Yeah, yeah he wouldn't have given it back if he hadn't gotten caught. Oh, absolutely. He wouldn't have given it back if he hadn't gotten caught. In 2015 investment round, Mr. Newman sold tens of millions of dollars of shares. Soon after, the company launched a buyback program offering to purchase employee shares too, but the company gave employees a different arrangement, giving them a payout per share worth substantially less than what Mr. Newman was paid. And Mr. Newman's sale was never publicized within the company. Newman. Also, another change to the company's corporate structure put Mr. Newman and a group of executives in a position to have a lower tax rate on some of their stock compensation than the rest of the employees in the company. Here we go. The tax breaks to the rich. Let's yeah. But even people that are up. in the company, they're these, these are the people that are in your own company. Yeah. And you're fucking them when you sell your own shares at a higher rate than they're allowed to. And then you're in a better tax bracket and then you're self-dealing. Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a bit more complicated than like, you know, Jimmy the Fly Snooker killing his girlfriend and you covering it up. It's a little <laughs> bit more weird, but it's still really shitty, dude. Absolutely. So that's what's interesting. Absolutely. And when these things were revealed in the S1, the prospectus paperwork for the initial public offering, a lot of people on Wall Street were blown away. And a lot of early stage investors in WeWork were understandably pissed. Sure. Of course. Dick Costello, again, we're talking about the incestuous nature of the VC setup and everything mm -hmm. like that. He was a former CEO of Twitter and he was like an early investor. He called Newman's self-dealing quote, so egregious. The second and biggest problem for Newman and early stage WeWork investors was the company was hemorrhaging cash. Yeah, it was right. The truth of the matter think, was, I'm just not talking think about the overhead that you're dealing with. His first investment was in what Soho mm -hmm. in New York city. It was prime real estate and prime markets yep. and prime locations. Yep. These were not cheap investments right. at all in the slightest. And the amount of capital that it took to A, take up the lease on that, and then B, have to possibly remodel that mm -hmm. area space to fit the office needs that you're looking for. Right. I mean, you're talking about lots and lots of money. Tons of money. Did he pick those up in prime markets or did he pick those up around the slump of the housing market and all that? Oh, no, 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 no. This was all happening. Yeah. Is it like WeWork's like 2012, 2013, stuff like that? 
Past that, yeah. Yeah, 14. Like, so they started in 2011. They yeah. got their first round of funding. Then they didn't sign the SoftBank deal until I think 2017. And you're talking about downtown markets. Well, major and cities. also think about the fact that the two founders, one is an architect and one of the guys like a straight up sales guy. There's no real like CFO vision in there. This person that's doing the analysis on mm-hmm. what these building leases are worth. Right. Sure. So they're just like, we're, there's no thought process to like, let's just lease this building. The idea is that like it just grows forever. And then you have the same guy, your CEO, who's just telling everybody like, we're going to change the world. Like they, it's the numbers are boring. Don't worry about that part. We're going to make sure that like kids without parents are taken care of. It's all going to fall into place. So they were getting their fucking lunch eaten on these deals, largely speaking. And there wasn't a lot of planning, for instance, where like you have these flexible short term leases. Well, if the economy goes down, those people, those short term leases are gone immediately. Sure. Yep. The second and the biggest problem for Newman and early stage WeWork investors was the company was hemorrhaging cash. The truth of the matter was that, yes, WeWork was doubling its revenue numbers basically every year throughout its history, and it was pulling in absolutely massive numbers. But unfortunately, their costs always managed to match the increase, meaning they were losing money at the same percentage year over year, despite the massive influx of capital, ultimately making the potential for profitability, even fully scaled, seem remote at best and impossible at worst. To put a finer point on how crazy it all was, at the time that they signed with SoftBank, when they were valued at twenty, like a twenty billion dollar valuation, uh, it translated into one hundred and thirty three thousand per member. At that point, each member was generating eight thousand dollars on average. It valued each foot of space it rented at two thousand dollars compared to say, <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah, wow. compared with say three hundred and twenty five dollars to buy Class A real estate in a yep. tech hub like Austin. Yeah, right. And the shocking thing was, at the time of the twenty nineteen IPO attempt, the company was being valued at roughly forty seven billion. Forty seven so with a B. Good so God. you can double those numbers that I just told you, pretty much. So at twenty billion, that's how they were getting valued at. At forty-seven billion, it's even more. That's steep. Jesus, yeah. that's insane numbers. It is. It never made sense. That's why, like Masayoshi San is like a genius, I guess. But man, I don't know how he did the fucking math on this one. Common Core math. It really is. It really he did it <laughs> Common Core style there. In the fall of 2019, the IPO attempt imploded, and Newman took the most heat for the disaster. The love affair between Newman and investors was over. Now those eccentricities, the barefoot desk jumping, tequila shot slamming. They weren't endearing expressions of genius. They were red flags for an arguably narcissistic personality that had a stranglehold on the company that they had plowed billions into. They were terrified. Absolutely. I would have been too. Mm -hmm. Of course. The leader of the fucking company is just a a bit of a freak show. Yeah. This is the thing. It isn't just about Newman. It's about the whole biosphere of this thing. These people made horrible mistakes, man. And the largest investor, SoftBank, said that it was going to go ahead and cut ties with Newman at this point. But in order to do that... It wasn't going to be cheap. Goodbye, Newman. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate cost of Newman's golden parachute? Almost $2 billion. 1.7 B. Yeah. Damn. $1 billion in stock buyouts. A $500 million line of credit to pay off loans he had due to J.P. Morgan Chase. Remember, he borrowed all bunch of money to buy a bunch of buildings to sell back to his own company. J.P. Morgan was his personal banker. That's right. And a one-time $185 million consulting fee. And that consulting fee is astronomical. Yeah, even for is. CEOs and founders yep. of huge companies that were yep. profitable and successful. Sure. To put Newman's $185 million consulting fee in perspective, the 200 highest paid CEOs at public companies last year had a median pay of $18.6 million, according to Equilar. 
Typically, CEOs receive exit packages that are multiples of their salary and bonus. So Newman's consulting fee alone would equal about 10 years of his salary. Jesus Christ. Wow. Yep. Perhaps worst of all, the buyout came at a time when WeWork was forced to lay off 2,000 of its employees due to the reality of WeWork's real business prospects, which means, roughly speaking, Adam Newman received 850000 for each of those employees laid off. Oh, my God. Yeah, again, it, it finally came to light. The real financial information was shown. He had hemorrhaged, I think it was like $700 million. He had sold off in uh, his shares. Right, yeah, he was consistently selling off shares. That's what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. At an elevated rate that anybody else could get. And a lot of those times when you're in those deals, if you are like you get stock options for a startup company, you can't sell those shares. And in fact, a lot of times when you have an IPO situation, there is a like a cooling off period where mm-hmm. they say, hey, you can't sell any of these right. shares for six months so it doesn't risk a massive dump early on. Especially for CEOs. Well, yeah, for anybody that has those IPO shares, which is why a lot of times when you see an IPO come up, like Snapchat did. The Snapchat came up or whatever. There were, I think there was like a six-month lock on selling shares. And the day that those shares were able to be sold everybody hit the fucking exits. Oh. And it, so that's the thing. But he was able, because he had power over the board, to choose when he was able to release his shares while everybody else that was buying into it didn't. So but That's the thing. you got to look at fiduciary responsibility. Exactly. He's out there selling his company to other investors to get their money, but at mm-hmm. the same time, he's flipping his yep. shares for hundreds of millions of yep. dollars, man. Yep. $700 million he mm-hmm. sold off in shares. Just to cover his lifestyle. Yeah, well, not even that, but his lifestyle for certain, but also to buy companies to sell back to his own company. Yep. So it was yeah. like this fucking Ouroboros of fucking horrible business ethics, man. By the time that Newman made his exit, WeWork's estimated value had gone from $47 billion all the way down to $8 billion. The worst thing is the total amount invested had been $13 billion. He's at a $5 billion loser at this point. Yep. Gosh. So if WeWork's mission was to elevate the world's consciousness, well, they succeeded in one way, elevating the consciousness of investors on a few things. One, just because the founder is eccentric doesn't mean they're a genius. Two, just because the company builds itself as a disruptor with tech ties and outlook, it doesn't mean that it warrants a tech company's valuation. Maybe it's just a fucking regular old company. That's right. Yep. And as a final- Property management company. That's all it is, man. And as a final note, just this week, it appears that SoftBank is set to renege on the buyout deal for Newman. And unsurprisingly, Newman is set to sue them. So the story isn't over yet. Not by a long shot. Right. So there it is, guys. Adam Newman. All right. Final scores. All right. So a lot to dive in there. I knew a good bit of what we talked about today. Some of the stuff I definitely learned, and I'm glad we dove into that. You know, asshole score wise, we always we always put it against the barometer. Did he mm-hmm. kill someone? Absolutely not. Was he just kind of an eccentric weirdo? Of course. Mm-hmm. But how does that gauge into your asshole court score? So I start him off with a four point seven five. I'm gonna bump him up. I'm gonna go five point five. Okay. On my final score for him, you know, just uh, based off the things I learned today. Mm-hmm. There you go, buddy. All right, so. When we started this off, you know, I told you guys that I didn't know who he was, so I started Adam off with a 3.5 to start with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to have to ramp that up hardcore with everything that I've learned today. Mm-hmm. 
to me, it sounds like he's almost like this frat boy that just, you know, he struck out on a couple of original ideas with the baby clothing line and all of that, you know, but hit it big with one thing. But I mean, at the end of the day, he was just a frat boy that made it big. I don't know if he's as much of a asshole as he is a dumbass that just kind of fell into the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with his firing of 20% of the workforce every year, just to kind of have this Steve Jobs type style kind of tells you what he is like underneath a little bit. So, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you know, he didn't murder anybody, but still I'm going to have to jump my score way up on him. My final asshole score for Newman is going to be a 6.25. Okay. The thing for me is that, okay, we always talk about the kill anybody and they didn't kill anybody or whatever. But the thing for me is also, I don't like uh, cultish vibes. I don't like uh, grifters. And uh, I don't think that he intended to go down that route. I think that route found him for who he really was. And, uh, you know, way to put it. yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you're given these opportunities and stuff like that, then it really kind of shows who you are as an individual. And a lot of people would maybe question like, oh, well, you know, what's the big deal? You know, but I'm like, you know, business ethics is ethics in general. And if you ethically treat the company that you're supposed to be the fiduciary of the same way, you're doing this to the people around you anyways. Why would it be any different? This is supposed to be your baby. Also, I don't like his personality. It's strange. Uh, he really considers himself. I get so tired of like the the whole tech pitch of like we're disruptors and we're changing everything. And so it just sort of wears on me. But, uh, you know, he's not Hitler or anything like that. I, I mean, I'm going to run him at a, I'm going to give him a 6.5. I don't like grifters. I don't like cult personalities. And I don't like anybody that literally, like I said, is going to scare your employees about being fired continuously just for the sake of it. You know, it feels like a, a real like dick move. So that's where I'm at. All right. So with a 5.5 from Randy a 6.25 from Buddy, and a 6.5 from Mikey. Adam Newman's final asshole score is a 6.08. Okay. All right, 6.08. For old Newman. Sounds pretty fitting. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Newman. All right, guys. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Absolutely. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Asshole Court. Hopefully, again, we can give you guys a little break from the uh, real-life craziness we're all having to deal with right now. Tune in next week to our next episode of our Fireside Chat. And as always, we appreciate your support. Much love. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to hear more of Asshole Court, find us anywhere you download your favorite podcast. Give us a good rating on your favorite platform. It really does help. You'll definitely want to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at AHC Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, depending on what you have to say. So until next time, remember the golden rule, don't be an asshole, or you might find yourself on Asshole Court.